We're in Mark 10 in our Bibles this morning. I'd like you to turn there to Mark 10. And as you do, let me tell you about a pastor who retired after 45 years in the ministry. And then he had more time around the house, you know. So one day he's fumbling around in the refrigerator and he found at the back of the refrigerator a little basket with uh, three eggs in it and a little box. And the box was full of dollar bills in the refrigerator, he found this. So he said to his wife, what's this? Oh, she said, kind of sheepishly, I didn't want you to find that, she said. Um, Every time you preached a bad sermon, I put an egg in the basket. Uh, He said, well, that's three, three eggs, three bad sermons in 45 years. That's not so bad. And he asked, "Uh, what's this stack of dollar bills? She said, well, every time I got a dozen eggs, I put it and I sold them to the neighbor for a dollar. And uh, and then he felt a little worse about his preaching. (laughs) Well, this morning we're in Mark 10, and Jesus is addressing the issue of marriage and divorce. And I think it's a very important passage. So let's read Mark 10, beginning at verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. Uh, They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one, one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And Jesus took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Every time I read that, I'm moved to think of that picture of Jesus holding the children in his arms. Marriage is facing difficult challenges in our culture in this day. Uh, Many young people are postponing marriage, waiting uh, until they get out of school, get their career started, uh, get the uh, student loans, debts at least, beginning, 
and they have to sort of have all the ducks in the row before they're getting married, marriage is being postponed. And not as many young people are getting married. Christianity Today recently published a couple of articles about marriage in our culture. And uh, by far the greatest assault on marriage in our culture is the decision of the Supreme Court in 2015 which redefined marriage, or so according to them, redefined marriage and permitted same-sex marriage. That decision was wrong on many different levels. It was wrong from a purely constitutional point of view in the sense that it was a profound uh, example of judicial overreach legislating from the bench to say nothing of how wrong it is from the point of view of biology or physiology or theology. But it, was a, it, it is and remains a very powerful attack on the institution of marriage in our culture. This trend is dangerous because marriage is the basic building block of society. If you destroy the building blocks, then society itself is in danger. In this passage, Jesus is addressing the question related to marriage. He is again in Judea. We should take note of these geographical uh, notes He had been north of Galilee, up in Caesarea Philippi, and then had come down south into Galilee. Now he's all the way down into Judea, which is the province where Jerusalem is. He is much closer to Jerusalem. And here, Pharisees have a question for him. They ask him, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Notice uh, that their motive is to test him. I mean, divorce was discussed, and the terms of divorce was a topic of discussion among Jewish leaders. But their real motive is to test him, not to learn from him or to be instructed by him. Um, At any rate, uh, Jesus answers their question with a question. What did Moses command you? And they cite a law in Deuteronomy, Moses permitted a man to divorce his life and write her a certificate of divorce. That's in Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus has a profoundly more significant view of where they should turn in the Old Testament. What did Moses command you? Uh, Jesus corrects them. It was for the hardness of your heart that God, that Moses gave you that law. And Jesus instead turns to creation. He says, he, he teaches them to understand what Moses commanded about marriage. You need to go to the beginning. And Jesus actually cites from, he cite, uh, cite, C-I-T-E, he cites from chapter 1 and from chapter 2. In the beginning, God made them male and female, Genesis 1.27, and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. And then he goes on to add uh, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, since this teaching is grounded in creation, it is God's will for all mankind. I mean, this is the fundamental institution of human society. Uh, This is, uh, God gives us the gift of marriage, 
And Jesus turns to the creation narrative for a proper understanding of what marriage is. Now this is actually very important from an interpretive point of view. If I ever get to teach that class on reading and interpreting the Bible, we'll think about what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus is doing here is he's appealing to creation. Number one, it indicates that he's, he regards it as a reliable narrative. It's what happened. It's what God did as he reads Genesis 1 and 2. And he's also teaching us that Genesis 1 and 2 has profound significance for our lives today. It teaches us what, what God made, the way God made it, is the way it's supposed to be. There is a creation ethic, a norm that emerges from the creation narratives. And, and so Jesus is saying, God made man and woman, and God is the creator of marriage, and God unites them. It's something to think about that observation that God joins them together. The unity that God creates in marriage is a profound unity. It is a spiritual oneness, it is an emotional oneness, and it is a physical oneness. And it is affected by God himself. And Jesus is teaching that divorce should not attack that union. Or not, should not be permitted to attack that union. And then Mark reports how Jesus welcomes little children. The disciples wanted the parents to keep these kids, you know, this is the rabbi, keep the kids away. But Jesus was indignant. Allow the little children to come to me, he said. And notice what he says as he, as he is with these little children. Notice what it says in verse um, 15. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Notice that language, the language of receiving the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the reign of the king. When we receive the king, then we receive the kingdom, and we are granted life. So Jesus is teaching that life with God, belonging to God forever, is a free gift to be received. Whoever receives the kingdom of God like a little child will enter the kingdom. Now, Jesus is teaching that wives are not chattel to be just tossed aside and children also are extremely important. Both our wives and our children are to be cherished. Now, let's back up and give just a little context. Mark's principal goal here is to emphasize Jesus' teaching that divorce is not to end marriages. But we dare not, we cannot tar with one brush all divorced people. Uh, first of all, we recognize that the Bible also permits divorce in certain cases. The Bible permits divorce in the case of infidelity and in the case of desertion. And in fact, Many people are the victims of divorce. That is, divorce has occurred and the person may be a victim of divorce. Um, do you know that the Bible describes God himself as a divorcee? 
In Jeremiah 3.8, we read, God is speaking, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. In the Old Testament, uh, the relationship between God and his people uh, is described in various ways. And one of those ways is described under the imagery of marriage. There's a, there is an, a very powerful allegory that appears in Ezekiel 16 where God describes an infant girl that has been tossed out into a field and left to die. God saw that infant baby, little girl, and he, the little girl was weltering in her blood, it says. I mean, it's graphic. He took care of the little child, raised the little child, and eventually the child grew and became a a beautiful young woman. And when she was ready for marriage, she was clothed in the most beautiful garments and uh, given jewelry, and he entered into a covenant with her. It says, I spread my garment over her. This is describing God's relationship with his people. I married the people of Israel. And then it goes on to describe in a rather lengthy allegory in Ezekiel 16, her adulteries. And it's rather lurid how she pursued her lovers and left me. And ultimately, God divorced her for her, her persistent uh, idolatry. So keep in mind that God himself is the perfect husband and he himself is the victim of infidelity of his wife. So keep that in mind. But this morning, one of my concerns is to help us all to hear the the, the teaching of Jesus and the, about the importance of the permanence of marriage and to help us all obey it. And I want to shift to that direction. Certainly, life has its challenges and marriage presents many, has to have many hurdles to overcome. You know, even if you marry the girl of your dreams or the prince of a guy, uh, marriage has challenges. There are work pressures, there are family demands, there is financial strain, and uh, so we have to work together to have a successful marriage that honors God. And so I want to talk about five things that are important for uh, keeping together as a couple. These five things are in the, in the sermon summary uh, if you pick one up as you leave. First of all, The first thing to emphasize is that core commitments must match. That is, man and woman must be one in their faith. Commitment to Christ is right at the core of our being. And in order to have a marriage that honors him and pleases him and stays together, we need to be one in our faith. In Sunday school, we have just been watching the film um, uh, about Lee Strobel. The Case for Christ. It's an amazing, powerful film about uh, his wife, Leslie. 
She came to Christ. Lee Strobel was a very committed atheist. Determined. He was determined to show her that her faith was wrong. That's a powerful film. Uh, and I won't go into all this story, but he was, uh, he was a, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and uh, he did a lot of research, went all over the country doing research, interviewing experts, trying to show that Christianity was false. He felt as if his wife had been taken from him. He felt as if his wife was marrying someone else, this Jesus guy, whom he was sure was a figment of her imagination. Well, so it's a very powerful story. Ultimately, Lee Strobel succumbed to the evidence. The over- he couldn't avoid the evidence. He did all of this research. He came to Christ. He is a Christian now, a pastor now. Um, he's written, I don't know how many books, 16 books or something. One of the books is entitled The Case for Christ, a book which I highly recommend. But... One of the things we learn here is the importance of having oneness in our key commitment in, in life. And Christ is the key to our lives. The Bible teaches throughout that believers are not supposed to marry unbelievers. Moses, or Isaac said to his son Jacob, do not marry a Canaanite. Moses taught the people of Israel, do not intermarry with them. That is, with the Canaanites, with the unbelievers. Do not give your daughters to their sons and do not take their daughters for your sons. And Paul the Apostle also taught, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship can light have with darkness and what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? So the most important quality we should seek in our mate is the quality of sharing our faith and commitment to Christ. Then, when troubles and problems come, and troubles and problems do come, then we can pray together. Then we can look at the promises of God together and place our faith in those promises. Then we can worship together. Then we can rely on God's people, the church, together, and so forth. So the first thing to emphasize is that core commitments must match. Secondly, communication must be uh, strong. Share your heart with your mate and give a listening ear. Talk to each other. Share your hearts and share your souls and learn to listen attentively and completely. You know, we're all learning in this. One of the questions I could ask is this. I'd like you to each answer this question silently in your own mind. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your communication in your marriage? Where 1 is it's absent entirely and 10 is it's perfect. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate the communication in your marriage? And then maybe having answered that question mentally yourself, you can discuss your answers together, see whether they match or not, and whether they're different and why. One of the things that Barbara and I have done for all of our marriage is we have a weekly talk time. 
That's really kind of a dull thing to say, a weekly talk time. Let me sort of explain. It began, uh, it began when we were just married. We would go out for coffee after, uh, after a prayer meeting on Wednesday night. We just went out for a cup of coffee. And after a while, on those Wednesday nights, we began to say to each other, well, how's it going in our marriage, in our relationship? And uh, we started talking about our relationship. Well, without going into a long, detailed story, that developed into a weekly date. We called our talk time, that's an uncreative title, maybe you could call it a dialogue date, I don't know. But um, it's, it's defined as a time set aside from the telephone. We used to be able to leave phones at home. But, you know, set aside from interruptions, a time, a weekly time from one to four hours in length. It's, sometimes it's been four hours, more commonly one or two. And when we just talk. And if there are issues to talk about that is in our relationship, they can be brought up there. But we talk about everything. I mean, everything. Our past, our present, our future, politics, theology, philosophy, you name it, we've talked about it. And... Um, the result is solid communication. And, and that's extremely important to a, good, uh, to a good marriage. I can't tell you the number of times that we have sat in a restaurant. I remember when I, we had kids and we were going, it was Friday night at that time. Friday night date, we would go out and often went out to eat. And I can remember the kids complaining, oh, it's talk time again. Who's the babysitter this week? But they knew that mom and dad were, wanted to be together, and that was good for them. Anyway, I remember, I, I can't tell you the number of times I have uh, seen other couples at, in a restaurant, and maybe he's reading a newspaper, and she's sort of staring off into space. I, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen that. Anymore, it's more looking at phones, you know. And there they are, and you can, you can sense the loneliness from afar. So, let's work on communication. Communication must be strong. Thirdly, uh, couples must know how to resolve conflict. Conflict is inevitable in a marriage. I mean, sometimes it's little silly things. And when you, you discover some of it on the honeymoon, you know, you squeeze the toothpaste wrong um, or whatever it might be, some little thing. You know, how long, how uh, warm is the bedroom kept or how to arrange a place setting. You know, we had a conflict over how to arrange a place setting. And I learned that she was right and I was wrong. Uh, There's all kinds of little, little bitty conflicts and you just work those out through consideration and compromise, but there are sometimes significant conflicts. Like, what are the rules for our kids? Or where do they go to school? Or do we need to move to a bigger house? Or whose job and profession, or how do we work it out with our jobs? You know, who has priority? How does this work? And uh, what about who manages the finances and with what priorities? I've done some marriage counseling over the years. I remember one couple years ago in a universe far, far from here, 
who came to me with a series of problems, but I remember specifically one of the problems was finances. And I remember as they disclosed to me their finances, he, his salary was ex- almost exactly 10 times what her salary was. And his attitude was, my money is mine and her money is hers. You could see that that was one of the problems in the marriage. And uh, there are significant conflicts that sometimes become a serious wedge in, in marriage. And the ability to resolve conflict is key in, in obeying Christ's teaching and remaining in the marriage and, and being happy, happily married. Let me just suggest a couple of things. First of all, when it comes to conflict, um, avoid the flight syndrome, you know, the flight, F-L-I-G-H-T syndrome. You know, you bring up the topic and I'm out of here. Leave the room, leave the house, go for a drive. Avoid the flight syndrome. Don't leave. Face the problem together and talk it out, work it out. And learn to understand the other person's point of view. Learn to understand your spouse's point of view so well that you could explain it as well as he or she would uh, say it. And be committed to working the problem through together. That is, don't let the problem come between you. View yourselves as a team, and the problem is something you're going to, as a team, face, overcome, and deal with together. Four, closeness must be cultivated. A healthy couple, a health, in a healthy marriage, the couple, they feel close. In a healthy relationship, there is, there is emotional closeness. There is an intellectual sharing as well as physical intimacy. We are complex creatures, and all three of those dimensions are important. And there is that closeness that is to be cultivated and enjoyed. Feeling close requires time. You need to practice the love language your mate needs and understands. Love Language is a book, or Love, love Languages is a book by Gary Smalley that's very helpful in terms of understanding your mate's needs and communicating love in a way that is understandable and appreciated appreciated uh, by your spouse. Uh, one more, number five, confession and forgiveness must be practiced. One of the most powerful resources for marital success is forgiveness. Paul wrote, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. We contemplate We contemplate the enormous cost of God forgiving us. He sent his son. His son was one of us. His son endured all the frustrations and the pain and the toil that we do in humanity. And his son gave his life. He died on the cross for our sin and purchased us for God. And he was raised again, the victor over sin and death. 
God forgives us in Christ and forgiveness is essential in marriage. Ruth, uh, what's her name? Ruth Bell Graham said that a good marriage is the union of two forgivers. Let me just tell you one story. Story of a good friend who was a pastor and a counselor, was engaged in a pastoral counseling relationship with a young woman and after a while there became an emotional attachment. He crossed the line when he began to share his problems with her. There became an an infatuation and he left his wife and his family for that woman. He asked his wife for a divorce and his wife said no. She would not give him a divorce. After two years, we were praying and praying and praying and praying. After two years, I think it was about two years, he came back. His wife's father said, okay, you want to come back? You stay in the basement for six months. And he did. He stayed in the basement for six months. After six months' time, he, uh, he and his wife renewed their vows and they are in the ministry today. They've been in the ministry for all of these years since. A tremendous example of the power of forgiveness, of sin against uh, a wife and then forgiveness on the part of both children and, and wife. That's the power of Christ in us. I mean, we are forgiven. We are wayward sinners forgiven, and we too must be forgiving. Our culture is in desperate need of couples who show the blessing and the power and the goodness of marriage. The Bible teaches that marriage reflects a relationship between Christ and his church. Let us be faithful in pointing others to Christ in our marriages. Our culture needs our witness. Let me bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we look at creation. We contemplate those words in Genesis 1 and 2 and we acknowledge your wisdom. We acknowledge your love in giving to us the gift of marriage, the gift of children, the gift of family, It is a gift that is to be received and cherished. How we pray, Lord, that you would help us to to bear witness to others who need Christ. Help us to point them to you, Lord Jesus, in our married lives and in our relationship with our children and in the way we behave in our culture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.